So welcome to Sunshine and Bromides. I'm Suwon, and we have with us today, joining us live from Seoul, South Korea. Um, he's working on his first feature film, and he's a veteran of several music videos and, and short films as well. Ted Han, what's going on, man? Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm so, glad to the show. All right, no, thanks for being here, man. So I had this idea of a question that I wanted to ask you, and when I when I talked to it. Uh, when I talk to other people about this, like, I always get kind of excited. So it's like the, basically the, the question I wanted to ask was, like, for, if you were starting your own film school, um, what five films would you build your curriculum around? And I feel like anyone is, anyone you ask this to that's really into to movies is going to have a, a pretty interesting response. So I don't know. That's just where I wanted to, to start with. No, definitely. I mean, uh, it's a good question. And when you kind of gave me this question about a week ago, um, I started racking my brain, you know, because uh, how do you even approach a question like this? Because are you trying to just teach the craft of filmmaking? Or are you coming at it from a perspective of art? You know, so like, there's just so many ways to approach it. So um, I think I have my own unique way of thinking about it. So so what did you kind of start with like for me I was like okay like I just thought of basically films that I liked and then because I, I tend to like a lot of international stuff I was like alright you know I'm gonna have like something from this part of the world I'm gonna have something from that part of the world and then at the same time I was also trying to combine like different styles and, and things that I feel like it would be healthy for people to be exposed to but you know, that was kind of where the first thing I thought was like, okay, it's going to be like the World Cup or, or, or something like that, where you're just going to have something from here and something from there and, and something from there. Um, where did where was your first like instinct when you when you heard this question? Well, see, so, you know, um, as you all know, I'm not really a craft guy. I'm not a guy who kind of is into the whole tech aspect of. You know, like for me, the equipment and the means of filmmaking is just a way to express yourself. So, you know, like I said, I think many, many filmmakers have always said like Seven Samurai. That's all you need to watch to learn how to make films. You know, like uh, I think in one of the Criterion top tens, they have these top ten lists for Criterion collection. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite directors, Raman Bareni, he basically said, you know, Seven Samurai is basically filmmaking 101, right? Lessons one through one hundred and how to write, shoot, direct, and edit a film. Um, so you know, I took a very different approach. I didn't want to stick with the craft because I think every film school out there teaches you the craft. So if you come to the Ted Hahn Film School, I wanted to teach something different, right? <laughs> so I think uh, I approached it from. Uh, here's what it is. It's basically. My film school is all about what I think filmmakers lack today. Okay. And maybe some of the things that have been lost along the way of, you know, from the beginning of film to now. Well, shit. So what, what do you think that people are are lacking, especially, you know, these days in the world of, of film? I guess to put it simply, substance, right? <laughs> it's such a spectacle <laughs> these days. You know, it's, everything's a spectacle, right? Yeah. And you know that's such a hard line to how would you say it to to walk because it's like you know you look back in the day and pretty much some of these great filmmakers like Akira Kurosawa, you know they had great stories, but at the same time, you know everything that he did was amazing on set, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I you know as you well know, like you love The Godfather. Everyone right, loves but, The Godfather. See, but that's not a film that I particularly love. Ah. See, craft-wise, I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing for its time, and it's great. Uh -huh. I just, I just don't feel it. So that's mm. my main problem. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Yes, that's. I just. I think I. If there were any listeners right now. Yeah, they they, they've all just they've all just <laughs> <laughs> turned this shit off, man. It's over. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, 
I guess we can get started on that then. Okay. All right. So here, I, I do want to start this. You want to go first? So how? Yeah. How about we just you know I'll say one and you say one and why don't we bounce it off like that? Okay. So people don't have to just you know tune out for my twenty minutes of films of insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually kind of cheated though. I think I picked six, but I may present five, depending on how this conversation goes. Okay. But I do have six things here. Yeah. Uh, and also, like some of them, I I picked two films for one aspect. Wait, what's so that? I cheated a lot. I cheated a lot, but you you'll understand it. All right. It's okay. Some of the cheat. It's okay. You can you can mention your runner-ups, but you you gotta just pick five. Um, so if you have like two films under one kind of aspect, just just pick one and then mention mention whichever okay. one came close. Because I mean, okay, that's fine. All right, all right. So the the first film I chose um, is The Passion of Joan of Arc. Okay. Right, uh, it's a film by Carl Dreyer, mm-hmm. and it's actually a silent film, right? Jesus. And the reason I chose this, I, I, I chose this because I feel like um, sometimes we forget the fact that uh, film is all about the image. Mm-hmm. Right? You look at today's films and, you know, like everyone's trying to copy Quentin Tarantino. It's like all about this cool dialogue. And I think what's been lost along the way is the idea that, you know, film is moving picture, you know, it's pictures. Right? So, like, I think I was watching uh, Prometheus most recently, uh-huh. right? And there's just is there, is there situ- a lot of witty dialogue in Prometheus? It's not witty dialogue. It's they sit around the spaceship and talk about you know, no, it, kind of. I mean, very much so because, like, you know, there's these scenes where I, you know, you find out these kind of spoiler, like these plot cues, like you know, basically, if you were paying attention as a viewer, you would have noticed immediately, like, for example, one of the characters is an android. But they have like this part of a scene where they say, "Oh, here is he who is an android." You know, they have to actually present it when you know. If we were just paying attention to it, it would have been quite clear that you know he's an android, right? But there are like kind of a number of scenes that are like that where uh, I feel like films these days have to explain to you what just went on, right? Well, that's just um, that, that's just being overly expositional, like. Uh... Uh, I had a writing teacher a long time ago tell me, you know, if you ever start a line with, as we all know, you know, like, as we all know, like, we're sitting here in ninth Mm -hmm. grade chemistry class, blah, 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 like, you know, if there's something that you have to start with an explanation of what you're doing, then you're obviously not doing a very good job of writing whatever particular scene that is, because people should be able to figure it out without you having to just come out and, like, explain it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think we got a little sidetracked, but definitely the key point of Passion of Joan of Arc is the fact that it is a silent film. It is a film that needs no no sound. I haven't seen um, Passion of, by the way. Um, you have to watch it because it's amazing. Because my second reason for picking this film, I can't believe you chose because, a silent film, man. That, that's fucking insane. But it's it's one of the most amazing films. I mean, it was sad when I watched this was that, you know, there are so many modern films that can't even touch this touch this film. They can't even come close to it in terms of its impact. You know, like, I was just, like, mind-blown when I was watching this. And, and here, here's the main thing of uh, also this film is the fact that, you know, it's telling the story of Joan of Arc. This story that has been told over and over again. This story that, you know, most people are very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Right? And yet you can't help but feel for it that it's it's not a historical epic film. It's a personal film. You know, it's about her. And how does Dreyer do this? He does it with the human face. Like most of the movie is close ups of, you know, the main actress, Maria Falconetti, right? And just her pain and anguish and her different emotions that are going through her face. Right, it communicates everything, huh. and so you know, I, I I picked this because it's an impersonal historical story, but it makes it very much relatable and personal, which I think you know, as I told you before, is one of my most important kind of goals when I make a film is that kind of personal aspect to it, right? 
Okay. All right. So, yep. um, so, you, so you chose a, a silent film with your with your first pick. Yes, yes. You have to because you know you got to bore your student. You have to make a you know. You to, how can you be a film school if you don't show a black and white silent film? <laughs> what kind of film I, I don't are you? Any, I don't have any silent films, unfortunately. But Ted Hong Film School is very pretentious. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's like the like the Harvard of film schools. <laughs> Basically. Oh man. So um. <clears throat> all right. So I I chose as my first film the Four Hundred Blows or Le Quatre Cent Coup. Um, mm-hmm. I think you saw this one coming from from a long ways away, but I knew it was be. In yeah. Some form. No, so it's Francois Truffaut's um, first film, and yeah, no, I just wanted, you know, like in you know, the first thing I thought was like, all right, I need some kind of French film in here, and a French film from the from the new wave um, is even better, or like the first film of the new wave is even better than that. So it was kind of a big moment for cinema, so to speak, when. You went from like the very kind of formal film as sort of an extension of theater kind of ways of, of filmmaking to something that's much more free flowing and kind of young and vibrant and French. I mean, what, what can you do? But you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful film, and so I just wanted yep. to throw that one in there. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, it's a great, great film. Unfortunately, it's not like in my top ten favorite films or anything, but um, it is one of it is a great, great film. And I think Truffaut is one of the better filmmakers from that time. You know, because everyone gives love to Godard, but not mm. really. A, so. Yeah. No, I thought about so the two other films that I was thinking about for this spot were um, Breathless and Rules of the Game. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, I I almost went with rules of the game just because, which I think I I think I like even more than the four hundred blows. But just for historical context, I guess four hundred blows wins out. But and yeah. also much more relatable, I think. I mean, I just think for uh, Truffaut as the director, I don't know. I've never met the guy, I've never talked to him, but he seems so much more of a thoughtful guy. You know, like Godard is just always trying to kind of impose himself onto the film and like you know trying is very didactic trying to teach us and lecture us Hmm. whereas you know Truffaut is definitely just trying to tell us you know a great story in some way he seems like he'd be a much more fun person to hang out with yeah and less full of himself yeah (laughs) yeah and you know and probably Renoir I don't know either but you know Renoir seems much more kind of how'd you say Untouchable, like you know, like when you're sitting with him, he's such a master that you couldn't have a beer with him, you know. But Truffaut, I'd have a beer with him, and I feel like I learn a lot from him. So. You know, um, wait, did you ever watch Shoot the Piano Player? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, that's so, so good. <laughs> I I don't know if that's like the first kind of instance in cinema of like a Quentin Tarantino-like scene where you've got like these two gangsters who have just kidnapped someone and and they're talking back and forth but the way they're speaking is very like you know Tarantino-ish like they're just talking kind of random shit and it's really funny and very endearing and when Truffaut heard like you know because people love that scene they love those characters and so a lot of people were telling him this and he was like you know He's like, I hate gangsters. I hate these kinds of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, what are you gonna do? Like, he accidentally made like a really entertaining scene and, and made some very endearing characters that way. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. And he hated them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what, what can you do? So, all right. Sounds so that's like my... the Godfather. Oh yeah, that's also true. Because you know, Coppola didn't like them. And yeah. so you know, I mean, for me, that that's what shows about. I mean, as going back to what I just said about how I hate, how, not I hate Godfather, but I don't like it. Is I don't really like Michael Corleone. I mean, how can I relate with the guy? Same reason why I don't like uh, Citizen Kane. You know, I, I don't really, I can't relate with Kane. 
you know, I don't know. Anyways. Oh my god. Let's move. Wow. I just said two sacrilegious uh, things, but anyways. Uh, no, that's fine. That's you, well, am I am I allowed to defend either of these <laughs> even just a little bit? I'll just throw yeah, you, up a yeah. token defense. Okay, go ahead. All right. So for Citizen Kane, I feel like it was. I feel like it was a movie about like Orson Welles looking at his own mortality, which is kind of a crazy thing to do when you're, well, what was he, 23, 24 years old when he made mm-hmm. that film, but it was very kind of forward-thinking and, and sad. And so at least that part, that that much I could relate to and appreciate about it. And then, you know, The Godfather is, you know, The, the Godfather is The Godfather, but it's also about someone kind of, becoming a thing that they never wanted to become and mm-hmm. kind of how that went so I don't know if you've ever felt that you were on the path to becoming some kind of evil being but uh, see, I don't know I mean I, I can't I mean you know you know what's the saddest thing for me maybe once again people will hate me if they hear this right, is that me the most relatable character in Godfather was Alfredo because I feel like we're all Alfredos ah and he's the most least liked character. <laughs> yeah, well, no one, no one wants to say like, you know, mm-hmm. if I was going to be someone in The Godfather, yeah, they're going to say, you know, I, I would say that I would want to be um, like Tom Hagen or, or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Fredo, yeah, no, Fredo's a great character. Yep. Yeah. All right, so uh, number two. Number two, number two, you should have expected it from me is, um, you know, um, I'm just going to go with Tokyo Story. So we're going from black right, and so white silent film to black and white, like, I guess a little bit of dialogue. <laughs> There's dialogue um, in it. Yeah, I know, I know, but you know, it might as well be a silent film. Actually, I, 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 it can't be a silent film. Definitely no, not. there's there's quite a bit of talking in, in Tokyo Story. And I think that's the most important part here, is that the more important parts is when there is no talking. So you definitely need that talking to stress the moments of silence, right? Um, so I picked Tokyo Story just overall because, you know, you know I love minimalism. Is that, you know, just the basic idea is, you know, less is more, right? Mm-hmm. So... I feel like so many filmmakers out there are just trying to move the camera for no reason, just to move it, <laughs> right? And so I just think there's there's a lot that a student can learn from Ozu where he's like, let me just perfect pointing the camera in one direction, first of all, right? And let's see what can come out of it because, you know, as you can see, there's so much a part of film that you don't need to... You know, you don't need to do extreme close-ups all the time and cutaways and all sorts of crazy moves, right? But I mean, but but if there's no crane shots, then then why am I watching this this movie, Ted? I mean, I, I need <laughs> I need crane shots. <laughs> you know, you start out That's close to the ground, and then and you just get higher and higher and, and higher away. Oh, oh man. So you're you're gonna talk about Touch of Evil, huh? Uh, oh no. Although, you know, just because so Tokyo Story made my list too, but um, oh. yeah. I mean, the Good. other okay. thing that that Ozu does well. So I was thinking of Tokyo Story, and I was thinking of Ikiru, and mm-hmm. Nan, and Seven Samurai, and Rasumon, and, and basically a whole bunch of Kurosawa movies, and then this one Ozu movie, but um just because of what it does like from a, a formal standpoint because it's so much different than um, what everyone else does in, in film like the way he's always putting the camera like two feet above the ground the way he's always like you know kind of looking straight at people as they deliver dialogue instead of doing like the three quarters over the shoulder like it just feels like a different like someone's playing the same game but with a different set of rules or or just playing a different game I, I don't know how you can really say that but like um for example when I was in college I remember reading a book on music theory I didn't read the whole book but I read part of the book 
I, I flipped through the book a little bit. Um, it was a Janacek book about kind of what his idea of music was. And, you know, this happens a lot more in music than it does in film, where people decide that there's kind of nowhere left to go with the current arrangement of rules, so they're just going to make something new and different. And that's kind of, you know, that's a big thing from like the classical era to the romantic era to the impressionist era to the modern era to now the, you know, whatever kind of era that we're in right now but like people in music are always feeling restricted by these rules so they decide to go outside of that and make something completely different and Janacek was talking about how like he didn't really kind of put together any sort of formal thinking about how music should be done but for each of his students he felt that they should be able to make like their own language of music and then mm. learn how to play the game in, in that context. And so I think that... Actually, yeah, I mean, outside of the kind of formalist to new wave transition, Ozu is the only person I can really think of that kind of changed things so dramatically in film. And I'm sure there are mm. other people that have tried to change it, but they probably just weren't quite as successful as Ozu because Tokyo Story is an amazing movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, just Ozu to me is wise, you know. And maybe, maybe it's also because he came from the silent era, right? That um, he was able to do things like that. Also, I mean, it, it just goes to show, right? Ikaru was, as you know, my favorite film all throughout my life until college, right? And now it's, it was it's my not... number one. Now, if I'm making a top ten list, well, I haven't seen it in ages. So I'll have to watch it you again. Need to watch but like, do again. Yeah, no, it's an amazing film, and I haven't yeah. watched it in ages. But like, it's been so long that I kind of lost my attachment for it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, uh, definitely. I mean, but you could just tell that these days I prefer Ozu over any Kurosawa because, you know, that's what I'm more about—small stories. Mm. You know. Um, now I haven't seen any other Ozu film except for Tokyo Story, but when I was talking oh. to Nathan, he was like, "Well, he he what he told me was that if you watch a lot of Ozu, mm -hmm. you'll end up not liking him quite as much because it seems like a lot of his stories are kind of similar. Is that are true? This? Not true or?" It is true. I mean, uh, most of his films are all the same, <laughs> like no, that. Okay. I mean, it's all about family tales, you know. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I mean, you know, like I said, I think a lot of them are still amazing. So, mm -hmm. um, one guy though, you know, because obviously the one thing I did want to say before we went over this list is that there are so many films to watch, <laughs> you know, so uh, like that I haven't seen. Right, so like oh, one yeah, guy that oh. I recently watched is actually a contemporary of, is it contemporary? No, no, he came after Ozu, uh, but this guy named Imamura, Shohei Imamura, mm -hmm. and I recently watched this film Vengeance is Mine, and essentially he seemed to be Ozu, but damn, a dark, dark version of Ozu, oh. like where he he views society as purely just animalistic and. Anyways, my main point is that uh, maybe five years from now, Imamura may overtake Ozu <laughs> if we were to do this list again. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I'll have so. to check that out. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, check what, it out. That's mine. It's dark amazing, amazing. Ozu would look like, but that, that sounds pretty. Yeah, it's just, you gotta watch it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm saying Ozu in a very weird way, and I think it's because of. Um, uh, Mehmet Uzir. So, yeah, because you think uh, Turkish. <laughs> yeah, Turkish German footballers instead of of Japanese yeah. film directors, but it, it is kind of confusing in my head. Um, yeah, Uzir is a yeah great player, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that's that's probably too far off track. So, anyways, your number two film was also my number two film. So, uh, it's it's your turn again. Just my turn out. already. Okay. So number three is where I kind of cheated. But I think, in my mind, they're both the same film, essentially. Right? Okay. So we go from 
yeah, Tokyo Story to kind of, in my mind, the opposite of Tokyo Story. Um, which is basically, I chose Breathless. Oh. But it can easily be Chunking Express. Huh. So to me, it's I don't know. To me, those two films are just they they're the same movie. Kind of, yeah. You know, like yeah. Like they have a similar feel for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why did I pick these films? Because you know, um, once again, I want my students to understand that rules are meant to be broken. You know, and the fact that there is something to be learned from experimenting and breaking all the rules of traditional Hollywood you know filmmaking so that's why I chose those two you know it's always you know like the jump cuts and breathless to you know just shooting out in public <laughs> you know mm-hmm. just make it amazing um Chunking Express is probably the only I mean Wong Kar Wai is the only guy I would probably want doing voiceovers in a film <laughs> and more importantly, you know, just the way he went about uh, shooting his films, right? Uh, with no script. Um, yeah, I just think many p- young people can learn that through that, something beautiful can come out. So that's why I chose So this reminds me of a question. Uh, no, not a question. Like me, my brother, and a good friend of mine back in high school named uh, David Deng. Uh, he was this Vietnamese kid and... We used to, you know, like, um, break dance together and stuff like that, right? So, me and him had just watched, um, like, a B-Boy Summit video or something where, like, people were just doing amazing, amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. And my brother went up to him afterwards and he was like, oh, hey, you know, I, I heard you guys just watched this movie, this, this video, like, what do you think? You know, were you inspired? And David looked at my brother and he was like, Yeah inspired to quit (laughs) and I feel like you know for me or honestly anybody else like if you watch Chunking Express and you're like alright you know Wong Kar Wai made this as like a you know as like a a mousse bouche or whatever I don't know how to say that correctly because I'm not French but you know he made this just for fun because he wanted to take a break from um, the other film that he was making you know that Chinese Ashes martial arts um, epic that had taken so long, and so he was like, "All right, you know, I'll just take these three weeks to shoot something really fast to kind of take my mind off editing that other movie, and then I'll take another three weeks and edit it together." And you know, now like I don't think anyone has seen Ashes of Time, but everyone has seen Chunking Express. So mm-hmm. interesting. But oh, it would not be I very... Think, I, I don't know. I feel like that's a dangerous thing to show a film student. You'd be like, oh, you know, for some people, like, this shit is just really, really easy. Like, uh, Okay, that's funny because I think we were kind of opposite on that. I feel like films like Breathless and uh, Trunking Express, the reason I chose them is because it makes you... It makes me want to go out and make something. Ah. You know? Okay. It, it, it doesn't seem such a distant... Like, you know... When you watch other films, it's like, how would you do that? But like, yeah, I don't, I don't own a battleship, so it'll, it'll be really exactly. hard for me to make a movie. Yeah. But like, Chucking Express and uh, Breathless kind of make it, you know, anyone can be a filmmaker in some ways, mm-hmm. right? And there's that spontaneity, right? Like, um, you know, film is so formal in some ways, right? And it's so fresh to see just going out there and, you know, doing it in two weeks like Chucking Express or whatever so anyways that's why I chose okay. these two alright so you gotta go with your number three alright so number three I picked eight and a half um mm. so the the two important things that kind of made eight and a half jump up here is that first I needed I, I guess I needed more European films or I wanted <laughs> That does that doesn't really work because I already picked four hundred blows. But um, I wanted one of those European films that, like, I wanted either something from Bergman or uh-huh. something from Fellini. But one of those kind of pessimistic European movies that blends kind of 
movie reality and movie dream mm-hmm. like if you're watching a Bergman movie like there are a lot of times when it'll just you know get very symbolic like it, it's not showing you what reality is but it'll just go from like something regular and then he'll like enter a dream and then he'll come back and you know a lot of times that's the reason I want to include this is because I have no idea how to do this like it's when Bergman or Fellini does it like it's just beautiful but I feel like when most people try to integrate a dream or a fantasy or, or something like that into a regular movie like it just it, it's really really difficult to pull off and and they do a, a pretty fantastic job of that thanks Joan why because oh. you know it, in the film that I'm making I do have dream sequences uh huh and do, yes, do, it will do you be do a tough. Fucking horrible that, job of it? Well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how it's going to turn out. But uh, is that going to be really crappy, or is going to be really crappy? Yeah. <laughs> oh well, you've, we'll you've left yourself a lot of. No, I mean, but it's true, right? Like it's really, it's one of those no, things dream. that it's very, very challenging to do well. Definitely, definitely. There's a um, yeah. play that. All right, so there's some playwright that Ingmar Bergman looked up to a lot, or I think he looked up to. Or there's another, like, you know what? I've I've got the book on my bookshelf, but it, it's in the other room, so I'm not going to be able to <laughs> to find it. But oh, there's a play. There's a play called Dance of Death. And, oh, okay, okay. No, and then there's another one too that's also very like dream reality. But yeah, it's one of those things that works maybe better in theater. And then translating it from theater to film is is really challenging. But every once in a while, someone, usually from Europe, is very good at doing this. And so, all right, I'll stop talking now. Here, what's what's your next one? Oh, well, I just want to say that I'll say the third sacrilegious thing. Oh, okay. And uh, of this show because, um, yeah, I I've never finished Eight and a Half. Oh. Oh, really? Which is kind of um, once again. I feel bad because I do love Fellini. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite films is La Dolce Vita. And, uh, yeah, I do. No, La Dolce Vita is is great, but I didn't like it as much as Eight and a Half. I don't know. That's interesting. Well, I can't speak because uh, Eight and a Half. I've started it a, n- a number of times, and I've never finished it. What kill? What kills you about Eight and a Half? Like what? What makes you stop it? It's not just that you get hungry or something, or just the dream aspects. I don't know. It, you know, for me, it's not reality. I guess. Okay. No, oh, but wow, like so the the reason I love this film is the same reason that you can't finish <laughs> yeah. it. Well, okay, but I don't want to. I want to reserve all judgment because the same thing happened with uh, 2001: Space Odyssey. Uh-huh. I seriously started that. I rented that film over ten times. Got to the spaceship part after the monkeys, and I would fall asleep every single time. So what ended up happening was I actually bought the film so that I could one day force myself to watch it. Did and work? then just a like probably five years after I bought the film, uh-huh. I watched it and it was the most amazing experience I've ever had. So. You're kidding me. Wait. No, I'm not kidding you. Okay, well, I, I guess it's my turn for Sacrilege because I, I couldn't. I, w- I would not watch 2001 again. Okay, I never said that I would watch it again. But you I said it was an amazing. Were you were you high when you watched it? Because no, no th- I'm just saying there's there's a lot of films that I wouldn't want to watch again, or like you know, it'd be hard ah, to watch. Okay, was amazing. But that last, I don't know. You didn't like the ending? Is that what you're talking about right now? I thought the Are end, you serious? Yeah, the end when it was like a, a giant screensaver on my TV for like 15 straight minutes. Oh man, I was I don't know I was into it I. I thought 2001 was... That's what was... I remember. How I remember would I put seeing it? something that looked like a screensaver and it was on my TV hey. and I was like, is there going to be anything <laughs> after this screensaver or is it just going to be like a screensaver for like the next, you know... I didn't know how long, how much longer I was going to be sitting there, but I was definitely just not, not into that. Wow, because see, for me, total opposite. Like uh, for me, that ending and the film itself was I thought the closest that anything has ever 
the closest to explaining human existence. You know, like, it just felt like... I can't really Like what Prometheus it, was supposed to be? Exactly. No, like, you know, not talking about origins, but, like, it captured that kind of sublime... I don't know, man. Just something, like, just ridiculous happened in that film. And... It maybe just, maybe I'll have to felt, go back and watch it again, but I don't. It felt like it felt like truth. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, that felt when I was watching it. I don't know how I you feel you if defended two thousand one much more beautifully than I defended Citizen Kane or or The Godfather. So, <laughs> you know, point point yeah. to you. All right. Oh, by the way, also The Godfather. You know, you always think it's a very <laughs> sleek movie. <laughs> okay. No, you. I finally watched it in theaters. Uh, uh-huh. You know. 35 millimeter. Yeah. And and the one, I mean, I come to respect it even more is the fact that it's such an independent film. Hmm. Like, because when you're watching it on a small screen and just at home and stuff, it's just such a sleek, 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 polished film. It looks like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, but when you watch it on the big screen, you can see that it's really kind of a low-budget film. Really? You, are, really? Are, 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 are you sure that you were just watching like a really shitty print or something? Or oh, I don't think so. I think I mean it just makes sense that it wasn't, you know. Anyways, let's move on. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> All yeah, right. Go, going on from from you hating The Godfather again. Um, what's your what what what's number four on your film school curriculum? So okay, what is also interesting though, you know, I picked Breathless, but just so you know. Not a huge fan of Godard anymore. Yeah. Right. No, that's okay. You can pick it for a reason, even if you don't. Yeah. Even yeah if yeah. you don't like it that much. Okay. So what am I gonna pick? All right. I'm just gonna go with whatever I wrote on my number four. On number four, pretty much I would pick any Cassavetes film. Although I did pick Woman Under the Influence, but I would probably just pick any of his films. Right. Um, why? I picked it because it's the ultimate form of collaboration, and maybe my students can learn from the fact that you know you don't have to wait for a film crew or money or any of these things. If you have a camera and you have some friends, you know, and they love what they do, you can make. A masterpiece. So I don't know, just the collaborative aspect of it, and you know, obviously Cassavetes, kind of just the ultimate actor's director, right? And that's just something to get those performances. Hmm. And under those, under, you know, like I said before, you know, he didn't have money. That shit was being shot on the weekends hmm. with his, and yet something like that could come out so I need to watch this because I'll, I'll be honest I haven't I haven't seen it or any of his stuff which is making me feel kind of guilty right now like I said before I I haven't watched his entire thing I don't know because I found Cassavetes only how would you say it probably three years ago mm-hmm. so even I have not watched everything but from what I've seen so far uh, he he's pretty amazing so Okay. Hmm. All right. Number four, sir. All right, so I picked Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> oh, fuck me. Um, okay. Go, go, go take care of it. It's a very Doctor Strange Love moment. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh man so i i didn't um a lot of times i just don't sign on my pager because um i'm lazy and i'm 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 always forgetting to sign it back in when i go back into work mm-hmm. um so the I, i'm just gonna read it because uh, it's kind of you in today nicole from respiratory what is the name of that thai place around here we got food from <laughs> see it. Yeah, 
Huh. I, I don't remember the name of that Thai place, but anyways, um, so moving on, uh, yeah, so, so Dr. Strangelove, um, yeah, yeah, and so, you know, I need something from America, and, <laughs> and of all films, you chose Dr. Strangelove, Dr. Strangelove is a great, yeah, it's a great film, um, and then I wanted something comedic, like, in the, in the curriculum here. And Doctor Strange Love is fantastic, um, and also I really like Stanley Kubrick, and yeah, this is probably at least of the films that I've seen. This is my my favorite from from what he's made. Has a lot of classic scenes, a lot of classic performances. I don't I don't think you can go wrong with Doctor Strange Love. Definitely not. Definitely. Yeah. But uh, yeah, once again. Not in my, you know, list, as you would put it. Not one of your more favorite, favorite films. Yeah, yeah. But then again, you know, I don't have many comedies. It's not a funny guy. You're, so. you're a very funny guy. Maybe, maybe no, you're just not, not an intentionally funny guy, but you're a very funny guy. Maybe. Yeah. Because comedy is definitely tough. Uh, ah, maybe I should have inserted that as comedy then. Uh, now I regret my list. All right. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> We're going to have to start over. So, so Ted's new list is going to start number one, Zoolander. Number two, I don't, I don't know what else. but mm. Tell me you like Zoolander. You you like Zoolander, I right? do like Zoolander, okay. yeah. That's fine. It doesn't but have to make your top ten, but as long as you like it. Only because of one man, Owen Wilson. That's okay. Make- Owen Wilson is a pretty good reason to, to like Zoolander. Yeah. So, no, it was good. Oh, once again, uh, when I when I watched that for the first time, I thought it was the dumbest movie ever. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I had to watch it a second time, and it was the funniest movie. <laughs> so, it's kind of like how I felt feel about Fu. First time I ate it, no good. And then second time, addiction. Ah. Uh, yeah. There you go. Wait, um, so do you okay. eat pho in Korea right now? No, I don't. Okay. Because it's not good here. Yeah. First of all, sriracha. My mom is always telling me, like, you know, she's like, oh, you know, you know, well, I, I don't know, like, she's talking about the walamguksu in Korea and, like, how good it is. And I'm like, you know, I don't, I can't, I can't eat it. Like, it's, it's gross. missing everything. Like yeah, because it's, it's all about the broth, right? And the broth is just clear and... It's not good. Yeah. Like, they take all the things out of it that make it pho. Like, they take out the star anise, they take out the... I don't know, whatever the other funny Vietnamese spices are that, that go in that, like... Mm-hmm. And you have to ask mantra. They're all missing, yeah. And I didn't get, like, the, the mint leaves or the basil or the... No sriracha sauce, no um, that black whatever sauce it is, but oh, they have the black sauce. They just don't have the sriracha. Hmm. All right. So, uh, what's what else is there? All right. So number five. What's your what's your last one? Yeah. All right. Since I'm not gonna do number six, just gonna put this kind of as four A before I go into five. Okay. Okay. All right. So. All of Cassavetti's works. Oh my god. No, uh, Breathless. And then I also picked two more films here. Knights of Kabiria, which is Fellini, and uh-huh. The Hustler. All of these films can be used to explain one thing that for me is very, very important. And maybe the reason why I didn't like Eight and a Half to a certain degree is uh, that films can be real. That, you know, there's truth from our everyday lives. So, okay. you know, I respect neorealism and uh, those attempts to kind of find something from everyday things, right? Yeah. But anyways, that was my little side note, and I'm going into number five, which, funny enough, is the total... 4A was two more movies. Anyways. I know, I flip it in. Number five! But you know what's hilarious is number five is the complete opposite of what I just said. Okay. But yet, I love him, and, you know, he's one of my favorite directors. 
No. Uh, is uh, Douglas Sirk. And so I, my last uh, one that I picked was um, All That Heaven Allowed. Uh-huh. But it can be any of his films. Hmm. Uh, the reason why I picked him is because he's just... You know, I feel like every all the other directors I've chosen so far are kind of... How would you put it? They kind of operated outside of the system. Right? Mm-hmm. The reason I love Cirque was, you know, he made mainstream films that were actually considered trashy. <laughs> you know, they were melodramas, and people thought that they were the w- most horrendous films, you know, critics at least. Right. right. But the fact that he can insert so much depth into these melodramas, these soap operas, mm-hmm. is, you know, something I do respect. So, I mean, one thing I wanted to teach my students once again is that even within the system you can subvert it so you never have to compromise I don't know you know because I don't want to tell my students to pretty much not go into mainstream film because within that mainstream film you could do so many more things but I feel like maybe we can learn something from Cirque and and the fact that even if you do something mainstream that you can still express yourself in interesting ways so huh yeah that's why I chose all that heaven allows alright um let's see so for my for my last one Mm -hmm. I ended up um going back and forth like I had a, a whole bunch of different things that I wanted to choose from um, Touch of Evil was on that list obviously and Sunset Boulevard and, and The Apartment What's I feel like yeah some Billy Wilder should be on here somewhere but damn uh, see, see if I had to choose a com- comedy yeah it would have been The Apartment <laughs> yeah. but anyways sorry no no that's okay um, <clears throat> but then in the end like I, I read this article pretty recently and mm-hmm. It was about like here. I, I should really mention like the name of who wrote it, but I don't know. He, he's one of those Grantland writers, um, and I forget he wrote this in Rolling Stone or Vanity Fair or some some other magazine. But it was about like how the economics of American cinema were going more and more against kind of good adult-oriented film, like independent film and so on and so forth, and everyone is going for the four-demographic film or for, you know, like, just big comic book tentpole movies all the time and sequels and and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's a pretty familiar problem, and so what, um, you know, what, what someone was saying was, what is it, like, there's a studio executive that he quoted as saying, like, you know, Hollywood isn't interested in telling stories anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're interested in advertising, like things that are easy to advertise and things that bring in a lot of money. And, and that's understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess it's not anyone's fault. But then they said, you know, now if you want to do anything that's more creative or interesting, like basically you end up on on television. So you'll end up on with HBO or AMC or... Mm-hmm. You know, one of the more premier networks. So I ended up just going with something to like a, a sad sort of resignation to that trend. Um, so I chose the the Office, um, the the BBC one, the Ricky Gervais original Office from. You're cheating, man. Why? Because it's not fair. That's because then I would have put in The Wire or. Yeah, I would have put in Cowboy Bebop. It's not fair. Okay, well, anyways, I can take. I'll take that away. <laughs> no, 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 no. Go with the Office, though. Go because yeah. I think it's a very. It's definitely one of the. I agree. In the fact that you picked it. Benjamin's going. No, it's. I mean, it's a really. It's it's six episodes and then a two-part holiday special, or a Christmas special, and then that's it. Like, there's nothing. It's. I, I I don't know. I mean, I don't really know how to 
sell the office I, I'm always telling people like it's it's not a lot to watch and you know like it's and then when it's done it's done like it's it's beautiful. When my brother finished watching The Office, like he finished watching the second season, and he called me and he sounded like so devastated. <laughs> he was like, oh, "Like man. what <laughs> have you made me watch?" Like it was so it, it's so emotionally affecting this show. Like it's really Definitely. funny and very sad and and it does not overstay its welcome for a minute. Unlike yep, so much else America? on on television. So. Like the American Office, like the American Office, for example. Um, uh, you know, I I think you chose a good ending. It's still ending on the game. air, right? Like it's still on the air. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. You're gonna, you're gonna tell me while I, while why I'm awesome. Please continue. Continue. Yeah, you are. No, you chose the perfect thing because I just think it highlights the big problems today. Uh, like you just you know, the Office, definitely. No, I just picked it because I mean I I I just think it's fitting because of the fact that people would rather watch the American office because it's so much more digestible. And, you know, I just think that's, that's the key to my list right now too, is the fact that, you know, people need to watch good films. Maybe that's the importance of this talk. You know, I, I talk to my students, right? I, I, cause you know, you know that I teach like literature and all that. And I tell them, cause you know, sometimes they ask me what my favorite films are. But I tell mm-hmm. them there's no point in me telling you those favorite films because you know they're like oh please tell me a film that I can go watch I'm like I'm not going to tell you because that would pretty much turn you off from film for the rest of your life <laughs> if you go watch Tokyo Story right now you know, and, and I try to I try to level with them because I tell them it's like going from you know reading Twilight right mm-hmm. and then giving you James Joyce Ulysses and expecting you to all of a sudden understand the depth of literature and the amazing awesomeness of it. Have it you just... read Ulysses, by the way? No, I haven't. But okay, you know, I mean, just... that's more dense. Yeah, but like it's you know, it just be um, impossible, right? And so I don't know. Definitely, uh, Office British Office was an amazing experience when I watched it because of you. Actually. Oh, really? Right. Oh. oh, nice. Because, yeah, well, actually, no, it wasn't because of you. No. Oh, fail. No. Oh, what had I? I watched. See, even for me, I had to watch the American Office first. Mm-hmm. I watched the first two seasons, and then I watched the British one. And even though the people are more attractive, such as Pam in uh, American Office, British Office was just amazing. So I don't even understand people who continue to watch the American Office. So somewhere, Anyways, Don I'm... Don Tinsley is very upset that you said that. Yeah, shit. Yeah, well, yeah, Pam is cuter. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, but it was no better. With that. And, uh, yeah, British Office, great. Oh, and the last thing I wanted to say was you were talking about films these days like uh, talking about like big movies not storytelling and all that and I think I've just grown a little bit cynical about it as well because you know even even there's no alternative anymore. even independent film art house cinema is the same thing you know you have the same directors making films and automatically qualifying for the top festivals you know why? Because no one watches it anymore. It's all about the name, hmm. right? The brand name, the director. Well, there's so, some stuff to look forward to coming out this year, right? Like, um, there's a new P.T. Anderson film, The Master. Um, I guess I just don't look forward anymore to a lot of films. Like, P.T. Anderson, obviously, is someone I would look forward to. But how many people are like him? Now, these days, everything is... You know, it's either Hollywood trash, like big budget comic book movies, or it's this other trash that is trying to be <laughs> passed off art, you know? So in some ways, you know, these days, seriously, in the last three years, I, I don't really watch any small films anymore. Well, there's definitely a lot of bad small films, like where you watch the trailer and you're like, okay, you know, this is a film that was sort of designed to 
target like the art house audience like um I don't, I don't know like that uh I, I never saw it but the film um god was you know in, incredibly loud and extremely close or, or something like that i forget it was one of those cute dave eggers titles but you know i don't know also i can't i can't read his books either but that's just me i think i read <laughs> like two pages and i was just like i, I don't know mm. i just don't love him enough to <laughs> read the rest <laughs> and so I guess for me as a filmmaker um, you know I okay it's not an excuse because I don't think I'm that good of a filmmaker or anything but you know even if I was right yeah I just don't know if um, let's put it this way if Kurosawa was an independent filmmaker right now making some shit and no one knew about him. Uh-huh. And he was outside of the system. Wonder if he'd get... He'd, uh... Be picked up. I think he... Uh, I, come on, I think he would be. Mm. Yeah. There's, okay. there's no way. There's, there's no way you can... Argue that yeah, that sort of talent down. wouldn't be recognized. Maybe it's just because there's just so much shit out there. <laughs> well, I mean, considering that, you know, you, you've already lumped The Godfather and Citizen Kane into the, you know, happily into that category. I, I think there is a lot of shit out there going by your definition of shit. And you know why these lists are important? Not just because of ranking films or anything like that, because some of these filmmakers need to go back and watch this stuff. Yeah. You know, like, they, they, I think too many fil- filmmakers concentrate so much on the craft that they don't really they forget the whole point of it in some ways, right? Mm. Telling a story, or you know, I like how you say you know the important thing about these lists is that these filmmakers need to go back. But I think you're definitely overestimating the the number of people who are going to listen to this podcast. It's probably going to be like me, and then <laughs> you. And uh, possibly, possibly my brother, depending on how bored he is. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Pat. Don't Pat will listen to it. Keen, Keen will, Keen will give it a shot. Up until you get yeah. to that part about the Godfather, and then he's just going to turn it off and say, forget, forget about it. But, yeah. yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess this leads into maybe what we can do for next week, then. Which is, we've been talking about the kind of state of films today. Uh-huh. And so um, I brought it up last time to you is that maybe we should do um, a top five list of the last decade. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's good. I think I would have a, that, have a lot of fun trying to put that together. Also, yeah, that would counteract our pretentious top five list for this week. That's true. Yeah, lists are always fun, though. I, I like lists. Yeah. And there's a lot of films that I liked this past decade that just didn't make this list, but but maybe part of the reason was just because they're they're too contemporary, and I feel like it's too early for them to to qualify. And also, I can't wait because Pat will join us, and I know that he will talk about Inception, and then I can trash talk Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> Pat loves Inception. Oh yeah, he he loves Inception. So. But you know, Pat is such a lover that you know you can't really talk shit about it. You know? I don't know how you two can converse. You're opposite, but I always give it a try. Like you know, even with uh, books, you know, like uh, he loves Stephen King, and you know, me being my pretentious self, I never even read a Stephen King because it's Stephen King. But I read, and it's you know, I read The Stand. Mm-hmm. And he let me understand, and it was one. It was a great, great book. So, hmm. I didn't read that sometime. It's really good. I'm yeah. yeah. reading it. I loved it. So, all right yeah. then. Well, yeah, that's it. So, hey. So I guess to everyone out there, including Suan's brother. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's really Keen. it. Maybe, maybe Keen. Yeah. All right. And maybe Keen. Thank you for making it this far, maybe Keen. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see you next week. All right, that's the show. Thank you for joining us. Music at the open and closed by Sundays of Portland, a.k.a. June, John, and Twee. You can find their EP on Amazon or Bandcamp. Posting provided by archive.org. This was Sunshine and Bromides. Apologies to the good doctor. And thanks again.